0: Welcome to the Activist Files. I'm Ian Head and I'm here with my co host Aaliyah Hussein who has returned from sabbatical. Welcome back, Aaliyah.
1: Thanks, Ian, and happy new year to you and our listeners. It's good to be back.
0: What have you been up to?
1: Well, a lot of people are surprised to hear that I took a two-month sabbatical. But that's one really cool thing about working at CCR is that when you've been at CCR for seven years or more, you get a two-month sabbatical. I'd spent a lot of time trying to plan, like, some big adventure, and finally I realized I just needed a break. So it was really fun to just disconnect from work and... Travel a bit. I went to Mexico City, went to LA, saw some former CCR co workers, which was super fun, caught up with family and friends, and just kind of rested, which I feel like I really needed to do. So that was my last couple of months. What about you?
0: I've been writing a thesis in which I interview a few CCR colleagues. It's been cool. So wow. That's my last couple of months, and I'm almost done. I have to turn it in this week. But, uh,
1: What's been the most fun part of writing a thesis? I'm sure there are lots of not so fun parts.
0: The most fun part is actually doing interviews with all these amazing, it's mostly lawyers and organizers. I do have ideas of you know, ways to use those interviews in kind of cool, whether it's a podcast, whether it's other media types of things, but kind of getting some oral history type things out there.
1: Well, good luck finishing up. It sounds like one of your 2019 goals is to finish your dissertation. Do <laughs> yeah. you have any resolutions do that you I want to share? Do I have any
0: resolutions? I don't think, how about you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think taking a break from work was a really good reminder on the importance of taking a break and boundaries. And I'm looking forward in 2019, hopefully, to do more um, taking a break. And when I actually take vacation or some personal time that I can disconnect from work uh, and really focus it on all the things that I feel like I don't get to in the In in the week. So that's a big resolution for me. People have told me I look relaxed and fresh. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll see how long that lasts because we're back to the grind, which includes, for me, working on um, Guantanamo. This month marks the 17 year anniversary of Guantanamo's opening. And on this episode, I interview CCR Senior Attorneys Wells Dixon and Shane Cotadall on our Guantanamo work. You'll hear from them what it's been like to travel to the base and represent dozens of prisoners for more than a decade. And I've been working with the two of them for years and still learned a lot from this conversation. So you won't hear these stories anywhere
0: else. That's great. I am looking forward to that interview. Before we get to that interview, I want to remind folks to subscribe on iTunes and leave comments and ratings if possible. It really helps our listenership, and we want to hear from you about what you think of the podcast. Uh, We're also on Spotify, SoundCloud, and many other platforms. So please, thanks for listening and continue to download. Now on to the interview.
1: So I'm here with two colleagues and friends and senior attorneys here at the Center for Constitutional Rights, Wells Dixon and Shane Cottedall. Hi, guys.
2: Hi, Aaliyah. Hi, Aaliyah.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much for being on The Activist Files. We're really excited to have you. So people might be surprised to learn that there's a souvenir shop, an Irish pub, and a bowling alley, amongst other things, at Guantanamo Bay. Can you paint a picture of what it's like down there?
2: It's very surreal, Aaliyah. In many ways, Guantanamo is unremarkable. It looks like any ordinary, bland, suburban town. It's essentially a strip mall. And yet there is, at the very margins of this base, a high-security prison. And that is very exceptional and very disturbing.
3: Yeah, I always tell people it looks a little bit like some slightly economically depressed town in the sort of, you know, central valley kind of part of California, like around Fresno or something. It's got that same dry climate, the same sort of mountainous look. I mean, the bay itself is very, very beautiful, which is one of the kind of striking incongruities about it, right? I mean, the first couple times I was there, I kept thinking, you know, when they hand this back to the Cubans, it'll be Club Med Guantanamo. (laughs) That'll be the most likely thing to use it for, because there aren't really people who live around there. It's a dry part of Cuba outside of the walls of the base. It's
2: or the the fence line. Right. Two striking features of the base now are first that it is extremely dry and dusty, as Shane mentioned. That's in part because there's no natural freshwater source. When the Cubans and the Americans got into a spat many years ago, the underwater aquifers were, were sealed off. And so it's very dry and dusty. And the other distinguishing feature of the base and the prison in particular, is that it's absolutely falling apart. One of the things that strikes me having gone to Guantanamo for more than a decade is how run down the facilities are. I mean, Guantanamo is a dump.
1: Who are the people who are living on the base and working there? That's a good question.
2: (laughs) There is a very large staff that runs the prison, and ironically the prison is the smallest part of the Guantanamo Naval Base, but I think that there are about at least 10 soldiers for every detainee, probably more like 100 soldiers for every detainee. Beyond that, you have the military personnel and civilian personnel and their families that live on the rest of the naval base, and that could be anybody from you know ordinary uh, sailors or Coast Guard personnel, to the FBI, to elementary school teachers, right, who teach the children of the people stationed there. And there are also uh, a number of people who I think are referred to by the authorities as quote-unquote guest workers who work there. These are mostly men and women from Jamaica or the Philippines who are paid some ridiculously low wage, probably a dollar an hour. I think is what I had heard last. Who handle a lot of the manual labor that is cutting the grass, painting the structures, serving food, working in the kitchens, things like that.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somehow my understanding has always been these folks are exempted from federal minimum wage laws. So it's another way
2: at the basis, kind of a legal exemption, right? Interestingly, mm-hmm. what you don't see are Cubans. You know, here you are in Cuba and yet there are no Cubans.
3: One of the reasons everything seems so junky there is, I think, just the kind of military approach to doing things. It's usually, you know, I think the mentality is we need to do something urgently, even if it's build a new facility, and so it gets done in the quickest way possible, often by private contractors at tremendous expense and things aren't really you know, sort of built to last there. Mm -hmm. So it's weird you hear about the other side of Cuba that everything's falling apart, right? Here everything's falling apart for a different reason, which is just that, you know, nobody's planning way in advance and they have a ton of money to throw at building things really quickly, which could be emblematic of the whole place, really.
2: Guantanamo was supposed to be a temporary prison facility. That's obviously ancient history at this point, but it was constructed to be a temporary facility. And so you have things happen such as during one of the last hurricanes, the the seaside galley, which is where the, the soldiers eat out by the prison, nearly went off the cliff into the Caribbean mm-hmm. Sea because it was a temporary facility. It just wasn't meant to withstand the environment.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that Guantanamo was set up to be temporary, and you both have been going down to the prison for a very long time. Do you remember your first trip down? And can you talk about that and also how it's changed over time?
2: my first trip to Guantanamo was a very long time ago. It was the end of 2005 or maybe early 2006. I don't remember exactly. And the environment was very tense when I remember flying into the base from Florida and getting off the charter aircraft and being met by soldiers with guns and guard dogs and having other soldiers tear through my luggage, I mean, literally pulling things out and throwing them to the side. The environment was very hostile. It was very clear that lawyers were not welcome at Guantanamo and that we were a disruption to the operations that were going on at that time. And of course, from our perspective, that was the purpose of our being there, to disrupt these operations, but we were not welcome. Since then, the environment has eased up in many respects. We go to Guantanamo frequently and are used to the process. The military is used to us. We're used to them. And by and large, it works smoothly. Prison is in many ways sleepy these days. There's a sense of resignation and I think sort of complacency that's set in, not only among the lawyers but also among the prison staff and particularly among the detainees. I think if you asked a lot of people, uh, if you asked anybody, at this point, whether they want to be in Guantanamo, the answer would be no. No matter where you are, no matter what your role is at Guantanamo, people just don't want to be there. In a large sense, people are kind of going through the motions, just trying to get through day by day. And so there is an effort to fight off complacency. You know, Guantanamo has been around so long that the men and women who work there, I'm talking about the soldiers, don't remember a time before Guantanamo. They're too young. To remember America before Guantanamo. So it seems normal to them, right? And lawyers like us have been going on, going down there for so long that in some sense it seems normal to us as well. And we have to resist that and remember that it's the gulag of our times, as Amnesty said back in 2005.
3: You know, and I think one of the landmark physical features of the base is these four giant wind turbines that help power the whole place. And uh, I couldn't really figure out the first couple of visits what, what it was that I found so kind of catching about that, um, or striking about the fact that the whole landscape is dominated by these windmills. And then I thought, oh, it's it's Don Quixote. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> this is a symbol of how chaotic and never ending this whole thing is. These things just keep spinning in circles. And, you know, it is true. You have to try to fight it in your mind. Put yourself a little bit into the mentality of the clients, which then makes it much harder to be down there, you know? I mean, at this point, I've been going for 11, this is into my 11th year. I've spent, I think, six months in total at the base, 1% of my whole life, I guess, um, which is definitely a lot longer than we thought it would ever be on that first trip. But my, my first trip was about two years after Wells's first trip, and probably a day I don't think either of us would forget. February 11th, 2008, I think, was the flight down, and as we were in Fort Lauderdale, we usually fly down there and catch a private charter flight, essentially, a small commercial plane back then. It was 15-seaters into Guantanamo, and while we're waiting in the terminal there, we find out that one of CCR's clients, Mohammed al-Qahtani, has been charged as part of the 9-11 conspiracy and military commission with a death penalty offense. So somebody has to go in the next day and explain the whole thing to him. (laughs) al Qatani, of course, the first detainee to have a special torture plan written for him in Washington, was damaged, as you might expect from that application of that plan, but also, as we learned later, long after this first visit, we learned later that he had been diagnosed as psychotic in Saudi Arabia a long time before anyone accused him of cavorting with evildoers, right? So my very first visit to a client was stepping into the room for the first time with Muhammad al Qatani to tell him he had been charged with a death penalty offense in relation to the the worst terrorist attack in American history with Wells, who had never met him,
2: right, at that point? That was my first visit with him. I remember that well. And what I remember uh, in addition to that was that we were initially denied permission to see him because he wasn't on our visit request list right this is typical of guantanamo you put in a request to see a detainee a month in advance or you don't get to see that individual and so katani wasn't on our visit request list and so they initially denied us access to him right immediately after charging him with the death penalty offense and so what did we do we called the new york times and they wrote a story about that and I remember we got a call from the staff judge advocate, that's the military lawyer to the JTF commander, the very next day saying, I remember him saying, well, why did you do that? (laughs) I remember saying, because you wouldn't let us see our client. And we at that point got to see our client.
1: Hashtag creative lawyering. (laughs) Can you describe a typical day at Guantanamo for you when you're on your trips?
2: That depends very much on why we're there for a particular visit in terms of an ordinary visit to see a habeas corpus client you have to get up very early in the morning and you have to take a school bus and then you have to get on the ferry and then you have to go get your badge and then you go out to the prison and the whole process of getting out to the prison probably takes an hour or two from start to finish you know in many ways guantanamo is hurry up and wait you have to go and wait for this and wait for that and takes 20 minutes to get anywhere in Guantanamo. So you spend a lot of time getting to the prison. Then you meet with your client for a few hours and take a lunch break. And you meet for a few hours in the afternoon. And then by basically 5 o'clock, you're finished. And you can go and buy food and go back and cook it or have a barbecue if you're with, with other people. And if it's summertime and it stays lighter later in the evening, you can maybe go to the beach for an hour and go for a swim. If you're there for the military commissions, it's very different. And if you have a a hearing down at Guantanamo, it's nonstop work from 7 a.m. till midnight sometimes, getting ready for these hearings and filing, making filings and things like that. It's very busy. So it, it depends. Very much depends yeah
3: it 's very not busy if you 're there on, on the habeas side because you know it is hurry up and wait, and there 's a very kind of strict schedule, but the military kind of limits you to essentially about five hours total with your clients. The rest of the time, you're on the ferry from the kind of abandoned side of the base over to the side where everything else is. You're, you know, getting a badge. You're, you know, kind of, uh, you know, liaising in the McDonald's while waiting for different things to happen. Um, You're in a car going over a hill line to where the camps are. So it's not very efficient. I mean, one of the many things, I guess, that distinguishes it from a regular prison visit. I've had prison visits here in the U.S., where you know in one day we got in like nine hours with a client who you know uh, was seven hundred miles away essentially you know down there you, in a whole week you get about thirty three hours of time in very inflexible about it and it's changed a lot since the beginning you know I think when people first started going down there you could get almost sixty something hours. You know, which made up a little bit for the fact that you had to spend a whole day um, flying to Florida and then flying to Gitmo and, uh, and all the other problems and how expensive it is to pay for a translator, like $1,000 to $1,500 a day. But you know, they have over the years gone out of their way to make a, our time down there less efficient and also make us reserve trips way, way in advance, which just uh, kind of destroys the ability to kind of um, keep up a steady stream of communication and uh, a steady presence in front of your clients. Mm-hmm.
2: The bureaucracy is, is insurmountable. I mean, the amount of red tape that you have to work your way through in order to see a client for an hour or two is, is incredible. And you always have to build in to your, your schedule time for things to go wrong, because things always go wrong in Guantanamo. You, know, you can show up for the airplane and not be able to get on the flight. You can roll up to the prison and have the, the prison authorities say, we have no idea who you are, are you even authorized to be on this base? You can show up to get a badge and have someone tell you your security clearance has been revoked. I mean, there are any number of absurdities, right, that stand in the way of actually getting work done at Guantanamo. And so it's just something that you have to, be, you have to plan for. And it's very frustrating, but that's a fact of life. And to some extent, that's endemic in the military. I, at one point, several years ago, asked a Marine Corps officer whether this was typical of the U.S. military, meaning the amount of bureaucracy and the, the, amount of, the frequency with which things go completely wrong. And he was sort of taken aback, and I think, honestly, somewhat offended that I asked that. He said, no, this is not the way that the military operates. Guantanamo is exceptional, even by military standards. This just isn't the way we operate ordinarily. You
3: know, although the military is very regimented, right? And that's one of the striking things about spending a lot of time down there is I realized that I think that military life basically is life under socialism. These folks are essentially living in the, the, the meta, you know, the proverbial nanny state, right? Everything about their lives is, is laid out for them. And then we come in and we're not really part of this. And so everything, you know, sort of is out of place, right? Like, you know, where's your paper proving you to be on this flight to be down here for this amount of days? You know, where's your badge? Right. I mean, you know, we are as lawyers, they are kind of intruders into a system that is, you know, unrecognizable in ordinary American civilian life. And yet, you know, because people are typically so conservative politically in the military, it's just striking that, you know, they're basically living in a completely regimented state where the TV ads and the the labels on the food in the cafeteria hector you about what's healthy and what's not. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Yeah. What's the current mm -hmm. estimate for how much it costs to keep Guantanamo open right now?
3: The overall cost of the detention operations in 2017, I believe, was 450 million, and it goes up every year. Um, so, you know, we're assuming about half a billion dollars this year, and you've got 40 guys there, so 10 to 11 million dollars per. Of that, about 40% is the commission process itself. I think somewhere around 180 million dollars um, on commissions in 2017. So. It's astonishingly expensive. I mean, like I think regular stateside detentions are about $30,000 a year mm-hmm. per prisoner.
1: So we've talked a little bit about the food options at Guantanamo between the Seaside Galley and McDonald's. What are the food options like? And do you have any preferences?
2: <laughs> food is always an important topic at Guantanamo. Because what else are you going to do down there? Buddy eat. buddy <laughs> eat. <but> eat right? <laughs> With your off hours. The food, by and large, is terrible. And the reason for that is that everything is brought in on a barge and everything is flash frozen. So you wanna go to McDonald's and eat a hamburger, you're guaranteed that it was flash frozen and brought in on a barge weeks earlier. The only really tolerable healthy food option is to eat at the galley where the soldiers eat. And you can do that when you're traveling for military commission purposes, but you can't really do that as much if you're just there for habeas visits, you have to suffer. And so the solution to this, to the food problem for the habeas lawyers, was to barbecue. And one of the things we used to do in the old days is that when there were a lot of habeas lawyers traveling out to the base, is that every night there would be a large barbecue for 20, 30, 40 lawyers. And every night a different law firm would take responsibility for preparing food for the entire group so that you'd have to think about cooking for yourself every night. You know, to have Jenner and Block takes one night, Kramer Levin takes another, Bingham McCutcheon takes another night, and it made the experience a little more tolerable, too, right? It gave the lawyers and the interpreters and the paralegals an opportunity to get together and sort of decompress and unwind after what were very depressing, difficult days. That doesn't happen so much anymore, though.
3: Because there are fewer clients and there are less law firms engaged in it, right? You know, law firm associates tend to work such long hours, such grinding hours that, you know, I've heard from a lot of people that the one thing they look forward to is 8 p.m. hitting when they can charge their dinner at some fancy restaurant and get it delivered to their desk uh, to the firm, right? So I think a lot of the firm counsel used to expect to eat pretty well if they were down there for work and they'd bring steaks and, you know, bottles of red wine and all sorts of fancy food. Most of the time we, you know, grab stuff at the the military supermarket on the way back from the prison camps to the ferry. Then we go back to the isolated side of the island where they keep us as habeas visitors and you cook food in your room.
1: I remember my first trip down, there were steaks. Uh, There were steaks, (laughs) so I was eating better than I did in Brooklyn. And then my hotel room was like bigger than my apartment in Brooklyn, which was very bizarre. And food's also an important component of client meetings. And I know we've all had interesting requests for food and have done some impressive shopping beforehand to take all the way down to Cuba. Anything you can share about sort of uh, food sure. and meetings? Well, maybe,
3: maybe the backstory of it first. I mean, you know, one of the things I always tell people about visiting clients at Guantanamo is that it's the opposite of a regular prison. First of all, you're working in translation, which is a little unusual, right? You know, usually domestically people would speak English at some level, right? So that has a whole host of challenges. They will flip through your paperwork. We tend to not bring in a lot of paper in most meetings because you know they they believe they have the right to search it for contraband and, and sometimes other things. And uh, and that's completely unorthodox. In federal prisons, you can bring in litigation bags full of binders with metal binder clips and staples. Can't do that at Gitmo. But in a regular prison, you can't bring in food at all. Right? As much paper as you want, but no food. And Gitmo's kind of the the inverse of that. And the history behind it is kind of interesting. I mean, our former colleague, who was the first civilian habeas counsel to go visit, was at that McDonald's on the base waiting to go, I guess, get her badge and go in for her first visit. And she said, you know, can I go buy some french fries and something or other for the client I'm going to meet? And they said, okay. And they let her bring it into the meeting, which again, it's the exact opposite of what you would expect to be allowed to do in a regular federal prison. But the interrogators, who had been the only people to go in and see these, these people for you know, the, two years, the first two years that they'd been at the base always used to bring in you know, food as an enticement to talk or at least an enticement to come in and sit down with them, right? So unbeknownst to us, this thing that seemed like you know, a great favor that they were doing us we're allowed to bring food was actually just something that they probably approved because the interrogators had been doing it for two years at that point.
2: Interestingly, habeas lawyers got very creative with food. I mean, there are a couple of instances that I remember from, from years ago. One is we would bring ice cream in to some of our clients. And Guantanamo, of course, is 85 degrees and sunny every single day. And so ice cream melts very quickly. And so what we would do is we would freeze it the night before, a little pint of ice cream, and we would bring it in with us, and by the time we got into the meeting room with our client, it had sort of half melted, but it was still something that the detained men didn't have access to unless it was through their interrogators, so that was something that was important. The other instance that I remember is I stayed up all night, one night, with one of our interpreters. This was, we were going to see one of our Uyghur clients, and so the interpreter and I stayed up all night, and we made traditional Uyghur food, we made a, It's a very spicy noodle dish with lamb. And so we stayed up all night making this food. And the next day, we brought it into our client. And miraculously, it got through security. They let us bring it in. We were not allowed to bring in chopsticks, so we had to improvise using big pens. But we managed to get Uyghur noodles into our client. And it made his day, if not his week or his month. And so I remember that very distinctly. The other thing that we used to bring in with food sometimes were flowers. You think, well, flowers, why would you bring flowers Mm -hmm. to a client meeting? Well, flowers are something that these men hadn't seen in years, right? They live in this very sterile, very dry prison environment. They don't get to touch the grass. They don't get to to feel the dirt. And so we would bring them flowers, de-thorned of course, and they would get to smell the flowers. I remember, that was a big hit. And then the military said, no, no, no more. You can't do this anymore. And they said, so why not? And it was just, you know, it was an arbitrary rule. But being able to smell the flowers, being able to, to do that was so important. And it recalls to mind sort of one visit that I'll never forget in Guantanamo, maybe the best day that I've had in Guantanamo, if, if any day is a good day there, which is going to see an Algerian client of ours who's since been released and this was maybe in 2008, if my memory serves me. And we went to see this, this client, and we went to see him in this maximum security prison called Camp 6. And my recollection is there was no one else visiting clients at that time. So the military said, well, do you want to go sit outside with your client? And we, I, I was there with one of our former paralegals. We looked at each other and went. Of course. (laughs) And so we were taken outside the prison. We were still inside the the fence line, inside the fence, but we were taken outside to an area where the detainees used to meet with the Red Cross. It was out in a field, basically, and there was a picnic table in the middle of a field, and there was a little bit of a covering to keep the sun off. And we sat outside, and we had pizza, and we had ice cream, and we sat outside for the afternoon with the guards sitting maybe 100 yards away from us something that I never expected to be able to do and I don't think our client expected it and it's something we've never been able to do since but we had that one day where we were able to sit there and eat pizza outside and we had brought our client a family video of his brother and I remember him saying as we left this was a good day Mm. and it's one of the very few good days we've ever had in Guantanamo.
1: I appreciate all those examples because they're an effort to make our clients feel more human in a place where they don't often get to feel like that. So I didn't, I had never heard the flower story before. That's really beautiful. You both have been doing this work for a long time. What have been some highlights for you?
2: Well, the biggest highlights have been transfers, right? When our clients have been released from Guantanamo after many years and you hopefully hear from them a few days or maybe a few weeks after they're transferred, you maybe get an email or a phone call, or a text message saying, I'm home, mm-hmm. I'm okay, thank you, I'm having a hard time, whatever it is, but knowing that they're free is really is really the highlight. And it's, for us as lawyers, a tremendous sense of relief.
3: Yeah, the transfer is certainly the highlights. One trip to see some released detainees in Albania, we got to attend the wedding of one of Wells's clients who'd been transferred there, I think, four years earlier. Although it did bring home, I think, you know, something that I think of every time someone has left, which is that often it's just very, very tough. I mean, you think about that movie, The Shawshank Redemption, and how people have difficulty living on the outside. You know, a lot of these folks didn't have the best lives before they got in. So it's very difficult to to have a happy life after you've been through this kind of thing. Most of our men leave really, really broken. It's obviously a joyous thing when someone gets out, and it's satisfying professionally for us, but you also know that the news that comes afterwards may be you know, pretty depressing as well. We've had a lot of, I've seen, I feel like I've had my, more than my share of mentally ill clients. I had one, though, who did leave and managed to get two kittens, which was also um, really kind of a special thing to hear because he had been talking about it incessantly since the day his release started to seem like a possibility. So,
1: Why should people still care about this issue? They
2: should still care about this issue because there are still men who've been held there for nearly 20 years without charge without trial and this has become the new normal in for our country i mean we hear people say all the time this isn't america right you know we we hear stories about torture and abuse this isn't the way that we are well no actually it is the way that we are this is america i mean guantanamo is part of the american landscape we own it people should care about that right whether you morally or philosophically support human rights, due process of law, whether you simply believe that people are all interconnected and the fates of others affect our own fates, or whether you don't care about those things and you just think, well, we need to protect America, right? Um, It doesn't matter what your view is. Guantanamo is is central to, to all of those issues.
3: I think Americans tend to view the base in, uh, through a whole bunch of different lenses as essentially kind of some sort of absurd sort of symbol, right? You know, this is the place where you get a ridiculous legal process, this is the place where the technical status of the base matters so much to your rights, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, I remember when the Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo movie came out telling people, you know, look, nobody's making Harold and Kumar Escape from Abu Ghraib. It's because, you know, while the same kind of brutal horrors existed at Guantanamo, while was still such an awful place for the men who were there, Americans just don't comprehend the subjective experience for the men who were there and they view it through this kind of legalistic lens is just kind of a you know this absurd weird little quirky place but you know a place that doesn't really matter very much right you know it's only forty guys right it's even more exceptional why should we bother that much thinking about it you know but that's how Americans view it I mean to people in the Muslim world you know to the 1.7 billion Muslims out there on our planet it's viewed as this is an example of the worst that America is willing to do to you and this is an example of how America thinks Muslims, you know, the, the, the sort of treatment that, that can be meted out to Muslims. And it, it seems much more real, I think. It's just 40 guys, true, but it's kind of, you know, it's the spear tip for the worst that we think we can get away with doing. That symbolic value is, you know, is, is kind of something, I think, that hangs over the head of ordinary folks throughout that vast part of the world.
1: What keeps you hopeful and keeps you motivated to continue doing this work in what seems like even more troubling times right now?
3: Part of it is that this litigation itself You know, it's been going for a long time, and it's seen some really bad down periods, (laughs) you know. When Congress tried twice to strip away uh, the right to bring claims in in federal court to undo the first Supreme Court decision, those were some really dark days, and yet they were followed by times of great hope and very bleak days, and then periods of hope, and now again very bleak days. I think, you know, that's about the only thing that keeps me going
2: on at that in a certain sense of obligation, the idea that, yeah, a lot of people have forgotten about it. I mean, I'm the eternal optimist. I believe truly that we can close Guantanamo through litigation and advocacy, and I'm not willing to give up on that. And in terms of how we continue to do it 10, 15, 16, 17 years into this, we've had to take a step back. And... In the early days of Guantanamo, there was a mass effort to establish the right of detainees to challenge the legality of their detention, and then eventually we got to the point where we were litigating individual cases and getting people out, and it's become much, much harder. And so I think what we've had to do is regroup to approach these cases, to approach our clients, to approach these issues one at a time, and really to try to, to create victories where we can. It can be very frustrating. The slow pace of success can be very frustrating, but it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. For every instance where we encounter a setback or, or a problem of some sort, I have to push through and remember that there are brighter days ahead.
1: Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you both for your work and for joining us here on The Activist Files. Thank you. Thank you. roundup of some of the headlines here at the Center for Constitutional Rights.
0: There's good news on the challenge to Trump's asylum ban. Listeners will remember that we, along with the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center, brought the case on behalf of several organizations, including our client in another asylum ban case, Al Otrudlado. First, a federal court blocked the asylum ban, and then we won a preliminary injunction to stop it from going forward while the case is litigated. Just before the holidays, the Supreme Court denied the government's request for a stay in the case. Stay tuned to see what happens.
1: In other immigration ban news, we filed a new case on behalf of Yemeni American families who are separated from their spouses and children. Family members were told they had been approved for visas, but then the government denied those visas after the Muslim ban took effect. The government falsely claimed the Muslim ban was retroactive. There was a moving piece in the New York Times on December 17th that's worth reading, and two of our clients were on Democracy Now! on December 26th, one with his four-year-old daughter on his lap. You can still watch it at democracynow.org.
0: In Louisiana, we took on a new client in the sprawling case brought by the company Energy Transfer against a host of environmental groups. Energy Transfer is claiming the entire environmental movement somehow engaged in a racketeering conspiracy at the Standing Rock protests. While we were successful in getting claims against our client, Earth First, dismissed from the case, we are now representing Crystal Tubols, an Oglala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne U.S. Army veteran and environmental and indigenous rights activist. Energy Transfers lawyers, who also represent Donald Trump, claim Ms. Tubols made statements encouraging people to protest at Standing Rock and served as a liaison between the protesters and the press and the public, all of which is clearly protected by the First Amendment. Ms. Tubol said Mr. to violate Mother Earth, disregard the rights of indigenous peoples, and are now trampling on my constitutional rights. This whole case is about silencing and intimidating those who stand for what is right and just. I will not be silenced or intimidated.
1: And speaking of supporting activists, if you hear this in time and can make it to Washington, D.C., join me at the protest of the 17th anniversary of the opening of the prison at Guantanamo. Together with our allies and in support of our clients who are detained, we'll be marking the anniversary at Lafayette Square on the north side of the White House on Friday, January 11th at 2.30 p.m. If you missed the rally, you can catch it on our Facebook Live on CCR's Facebook page.
0: I just need you to say The Real AF.
4: The Real AF.
0: Welcome to The Real AF. This is Ian. I'm here with Leah Todd. And our guest today is Chandra Haslett, he- Communications Director.
4: Hello, everyone. Hello. I'm a little nervous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's okay. We're going to have some fun. I'll uh, take it all in my business.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, let's start. First question. Would you rather have all of your music on cassette tape or CD? I'm
4: going to say CD only because I don't have anything to play a cassette tape on. And I almost don't have anything to play a CD on. But I have a vintage Mac. And when I say vintage, it's probably 10 years old. I took the Mac to Apple because it was acting up because it was Mm -hmm. 10 years old. And they were like, oh, this is vintage. It's the white Mac with the little slot where you can slide the CD in. Well, according to the folks at Apple, it's vintage. I believe it's a nice way of saying obsolete.
0: (laughs) Would you rather shave your head or grow your hair really long?
4: Um, Grow my hair really long. Um, I have super short hair right now, and you guys don't know this. I don't know if anyone at CCR knows this, but this haircut was not my choice. Um, I went to a salon, and the woman who was doing my hair, never done it before and put chemicals in my hair, and I don't have chemicals in my hair, And my hair fell out. Everyone's, like, mouths are open around the table right now. So I was trying to grow my hair really long, and now I'm starting over.
0: Damn, did you get your money back?
4: I didn't, but long story short, I, like, contacted the state, contacted Better Business Bureau, but it was basically her word against mine. Mm. And because the state said you weren't physically harmed or injured during the procedure or process, that they couldn't do anything about it. Wow. Yeah.
0: Would you rather listen to music from the 70s or music from today?
4: Today. I was born in the 70s, and they didn't have trap music in the 70s, and that's my favorite genre. (laughs) I grew up in Memphis listening to 8-Ball and MJG, so there you go. There you go. There you go.
0: There you go. All right. I like that very specific citation. (laughs) I approve. Would you rather fulfill your biggest wish or resolve your biggest regret?
4: Fulfill my biggest wish, which is really for Well, a number of wishes, but they all deal with, like, our clients and the state of the world and making the justice system work for all people. And that's more important than my biggest regret. Mm. Yeah.
0: Would you rather be a great dancer or a great singer?
4: Dancer only because I feel like I don't exercise, and I know I need to exercise. But if I were a great dancer, that would be my form of exercise.
0: Would you rather hold a snake or a tarantula?
4: Ooh, they could both kill me, so... Maybe a tarantula, because I feel like I could, like, flick my hand really fast and get that off quicker than a snake. Like, the escape factor is more realistic with a tarantula.
0: Mm-hmm. I think most tarantulas aren't poisonous. Oh, really? So okay, so. And most a lot of,
4: lot of snakes aren't either. Oh. Well, I would probably just die from, like, panic. So when I say they could both kill me, that's what I meant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> would you rather live without email or without Google?
4: Email. Google is life (laughs) oh my god (laughs) don't tell Google I'm constantly researching stuff like Google is life for a researcher
0: would you rather be on a survival reality show or a dating game show
4: dating I'm so single like if there are any cute guys out there find me on the website so yeah (laughs) definitely dating (laughs)